On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor, Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking about Michael Lehman's SNL-tinged rock comedy, Airheads, from How do you do, fellow kids? I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the Motor City Madman, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? You know, I'm all right, Doug. It's fall. I'm into the fall vibe. It's mostly relaxed at this point, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying, trying to trying to face the world with, like, an upbeat melancholy, you know? Yeah. Like is I'm, that not I'm your like, usual vibe? <laughs> yeah, I guess it is, really. No, I think, I think a lot... Well, you tell me, Doug. I get the feeling that for some people who don't know me super well, I'm more goofy than i am sad but that's probably because they don't follow me on social media right i would think it's because they follow you on social media that you give off that vibe because not i'm just not knocking you liam i like the idea that you reveal your feelings about things on social media but a lot of those feelings involve i'm really bummed because of this or this or no this that's what i'm this. saying if someone thinks of me primarily as goofy that oh, means they I know see. me more in real life. Whereas people who follow me on social media are like, oh, Liam's a real bummer. And then they meet me and I'm just like, yada da 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 And they're like, what's going on right now? Liam, I have met you and I don't know if you – was there a dance involved with you going the yada da 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 Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you guys. I didn't is that, is that when you're doing dance. your capoeira? <laughs> oh, stop it. First of all, you can't even say it right. You can't make the joke until you know how to say capoeira right. Uh, no, I, I, I do. I, I don't think. I mean, I think it's, it is it is probably less now that I'm older, like in my 40s. I think I, I mask off a lot more where I'm just kind of like I'm willing to be like low key. But, uh, yeah, there was a time in my life where if I met anyone, the switch went on and I was like, oh, hey, what's up? And I was totally like, I wouldn't say I was cheerfully friendly, which is the vibe I just gave off, but I was very outspoken and interactive. I might say things that were kind of like uh, uh, cynical at times, but sure. it was always done in a way to be funny. Like, huh, I'm just being funny here. It's not because I hate life, you know, but like that's not the vibe that people get when they get to know me over time when I'm like, I'm like. You know, I make I'm cracking jokes, and then I'll just stop and go. Oh, everything's hard, and they're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> Liam's always got to skirt right up to the line where someone's got to send someone over for a wellness check, but never <laughs> crossing that line. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, well, and that's I, I guess that's the other thing. This is why probably I shouldn't be on social media is because I'm also never as bummed as I seem on social media. That's just like I'm on there, I'm feeling bummed, I say whatever, but like. In true ADHD fashion, all I need is like a cup of coffee, something to eat, a fun movie, and I'm like back on top again. You know, it's just it's all fluctuations with me. You know, Liam. At the beginning of the episode, I called you the Motor City Madman. That's yeah, the I hate that. Yeah, that's the nickname of beloved rocker Ted Nugent. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. It's interesting to hear you go blech, ugh, because it kind of feels like that the movie that we're going to be talking about today, just a little bit later, called Airheads. That's the kind of movie that loves somebody like Ted Nugent. Maybe not Ted Nugent now, but certainly yeah. the Ted Nugent of the time that that movie came out. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. I think that's fair. I mean, it definitely has I don't want to I don't want to give away my thoughts yet. Oh actually. boy, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm excited to to get into it with you, but I do think that there is a certain uh rock and roll nostalgia in this movie that feels very of its time. And probably reveals a certain anxiety that the movie's trying to allay. I think the movie is purposely trying to make sure that you know that just because it loves rock and roll doesn't mean it's racist. It's not racist, Doug. The movie's not racist. They want you to make sure you know that. They're not racist. Just because they think rock is dead and that popular music, which just happens to be you know, dominated by hip hop and R and B right now, they're mad about that, but it's not because they're racist. That's not why. Me thinks me thinks it doth protest too much. It just feels like that's a little bit of the vibe of the movie. Is like I think that that is a minor vibe, though. There's another vibe that's going 
that is part of the fact that it was filmed in 1993 sure. yes. and came out yes. in 1994. Yes. Yes. We'll yes. talk about all of that. But before we get into that music, I got to talk to you about other music, Liam. The music of folk troubadour Bob Dylan. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Bob Dylan? I, that was a little bit of a joke. I'm actually a huge Bob Dylan fan. But please, what are your thoughts on Bob Dylan? Robert I, Zimmerman. I mean, I, I definitely appreciate him. I don't understand. There's, As you know, there's a whole... Uh, train of thought in American pop culture that Bob Dylan can't sing and sure. that fans of Bob Dylan are just like fooling themselves. Sure. I don't understand that. Have you watched other people attempt to sing Bob Dylan songs? They Very can't, much so. He's yeah, like they the most covered musician of all time. <laughs> they almost, I, I would say, I would say 90% of Bob Dylan covers are bad because you, you, chances are you can't do what Bob Dylan does. In fact, speaking of my ambiguous relationship to rock, and by ambiguous I mean I mostly hate it, uh, one of the few times I find myself not really disliking one Mr. Edward Vedder was uh, at a Bob Dylan tribute thing. He did. He was one of the people doing a cover, and I was like, oh, he actually can do this song, and he doesn't sound ridiculous. And I was like, okay, I get his voice is good now. Because I, I never appreciated his voice before because Pearl Jam songs are so bad that right. I never had any reason to appreciate his vocal <laughs> talents. And then him doing this Bob Dylan song, I was like, oh, he's good. He's, he's pretty good. What okay. song was it? I don't fucking remember. I was like... I was probably like 18 or 19 at the time. I wasn't really invested in, in remembering, you know. It's just weird. That's a weird thing to hear you say uh, for a number of different reasons. One of the reasons being that you could probably put together a box set of Bob Dylan covers that are beloved. I mean, like he not only yeah. is one of the most covered artists, but a lot of those songs specifically were huge, massive hits for the people involved, particularly in the 60s Ugh. and 70s. So it's kind of bizarre to hear you talk I don't, about I can't think of I cover. can't think of one person I like. Well, and maybe it's different in the studio. This was this was like a live thing. And oh, again and again, I was watching it because my mom and my stepdad, though he was just my mom's boyfriend at the time, were watching it. And I found a lot of the performances really bad. Sure. And um, but also, like you say, there's all these beloved covers. I don't know them. I, you know, we've covered this before. This is old ground for our audience here. <laughs> Me and popular music have a weird relationship. Like, I know every word of I want to dance with somebody or some other like corny pop hit, but then there's like essentials of like rock history that I'm like, what is that? I don't know what that is. Like, I'm just disconnected from a lot of popular stuff. Uh, randomly, it's unexplained which things I know and which things I don't. Well, I didn't just bring up Bob Dylan randomly. The reason I brought him up is because of this article from the line of bestfit.com, which is entitled Helen Mirren, Steve Buscemi, Oscar Isaac, and more to narrate the audiobook for Bob Dylan's The Philosophy of Modern Song. So, this is a book uh, being released very soon, uh, if not already released, by Bob Dylan called The Philosophy of Modern Song. And uh, there's going to be an audiobook version full of celebrities reading the 60 essays written by Dylan about songs uh, by the likes of Elvis Costello, Hank Williams, Nina Simone, and more. So I guess this is 60 essays written by Bob Dylan about songs that he likes, presumably that he likes. And then uh, you have Hel Helen Mirren narrating Dylan's essay about Elvis Costello and the attractions Pump It Up, Elvis Presley's Money Honey, Frank Sinatra's Strangers of the Night, and more. And Steve Buscemi will narrate chapters about songs by the Fugs, Warren Zevon, the Eagles, and others. I'm curious to hear what Bob Dylan has to say about the Eagles, to be totally honest. Um, Liam, does that sound like something now, recognizing that you have kind of gaps in your rock history, let's say? Does that sound like something you might want to check out? Eh, not really. Eh. I mean, you know, I appreciate the idea of the sort of cast of characters who are narrating this thing, and I like sure. that it's a mix of voices. I always appreciate that in an audiobook. I guess not if it's a certain kind of fiction, but I haven't listened to a lot of fiction audiobooks. I have listened. I, to... I like those Stephen King short story audiobooks, sure, like sure, the collection sure, where sure. it's a different person reading each one. I think that that's really fun. That seems cool. Yeah, yeah. But when I've only listened to I'm mostly in my audiobook listening, I've only listened to nonfiction. And when a nonfiction book has the same narrator all throughout, not always, but sometimes it can get a little tedious for me. But uh, but a, a variety of narrators seems cool. I just think that seems like a fun thing. On the other hand, um intellectual academic essays or I'm assuming with Dylan it'll be less academic and more like sure. artistic uh, whatever meditations on rock music sounds like the most boring thing I, I just don't know that why I would want to hear about this. I, and I mean, even it is basically a written version of what we're doing right now you know why you like or don't like something 
Ah, I bet. It's ah. I would bet you money it's not. And also, even the <laughs> even the topics like okay, Elvis Costello, cool. Nina Simone, cool. I don't really care about the rest of this though. You don't like Warren Zevon? I'm a huge Zevon head, so that's no, me. I mean, I'm not offended by Warren Zevon, but I don't care. It's just it's not something I would find on my own. If if I knew someone who I trusted and was like, "This is really great. You have to hear it." Maybe, but I I don't know. <laughs> just me. Your good friend telling no. you how much I enjoy it. No, you, if you liked it, I, that doesn't sell me on nothing. <laughs> Other narrators for the philosophy of modern song include Oscar Isaac, Jeff Bridges, Renee Zellweger, uh, Rita Moreno, Jeffrey Wright, John Goodman, Alfred Woodard, and Sissy Spacek. So, uh, I mean, an interesting collection, certain, certainly of personalities. Would you like to hear Steve Buscemi do a Bob Dylan impression? For the entirety of his reading, yeah, that'd be cool. I don't, I don't know what it would be though. I don't. I bet he doesn't do one. I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> I think everybody does one. Liam, no, stop. Yes, I think they do. They do their impression of Bob. You know, how about that? I, Pretty I good. think there's a. I think there's a whole generation of people who couldn't tell you who he was. Well, I mean, that's just the reality. Of time passing. But, I mean, he's still Bob Dylan. He's still, like, one of the most famous musicians to ever live and a totally weirdo guy. I'm, I'm I mean. trying to adjust my gravity to the younger group of people. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, old, old musicians barely exist anymore. Who are they? <laughs> You're telling me care. the kids today don't appreciate Warren Zevon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they all like Lil, Lil Pump or something. I don't know. <laughs> Some shit. I don't fucking know. Liam, over at ScreenRant.com, there was an article called Adam Sandler's Weirdest BFF. Why Steve Buscemi is in so many of his films. Doesn't actually necessarily give us a good reason. They just seem to be close. And we've talked about the fact that a lot of Steve Buscemi's most profitable films uh, have involved Adam Sandler in some capacity. But there is a full list here, Liam, of all of the times... That they've appeared in films together, Airheads, Billy Madison, The Wedding Singer, Big Daddy, Mr. Deeds, etc., etc. I just want you to look over this list and realizing that you likely haven't seen all of them, and realizing that the bottom of the list would probably be The Cobbler, which we covered on this very show. <laughs> uh, what's what's the film on this list that you most enjoy? I mean, I gotta go with Billy Madison, just in that it is um, my favorite of. Adam Sandler's comedic movies, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have positive memories of The Wedding Singer, but I haven't watched it in a long time, and I have a fear that there might be some underlying misogyny there that bums me out now that didn't when I saw it in 1998. Fear uh, of misogyny. Yeah. Big Daddy is not good. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here that's bad. I will say, uh, as a dad who has to watch cartoons with his daughter yes uh the first two hotel transylvania movies while not great are also not terrible and casting steve buscemi as this sort of um neurotic wolfman was a stroke of genius i i don't know if that was adam sandler's idea i don't know whose idea it was that Steve buscemi is going to be the wolfman in those movies but that's that's one of the highlights of the movie is is his voice coming out of the wolfman so uh so i so i appreciate that but a lot of these other movies are just like not great uh, I really wanted to like Hubie Halloween, but it's it's not it's not good. So. I thought you had positive things to say about Hubie Halloween. I didn't hate it. It was fun, but it's not like it doesn't. I mean, on this list, is it is it better than Grown Ups? Yeah, but come on, I it's better than I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry like an actual hate crime. So that's like you know what I mean. Like I like how you I've heard you refer to movies as a actual hate crime several times. This might be the first time where it might actually literally be true. Yeah, no, I that's true. I shouldn't say that because usually when I say that, what I mean is it's just bad. In this right. case, I literally mean the term hate crime. You know, I, I mean it as an actual crime against gay folks you know i'm um, also a billy madison fan by the way which yeah. is a surprising thing to come out of my mouth but I, I love that movie and i'm curious about revisiting it i watched it maybe a few years ago and still enjoyed it quite a bit mostly because it's just so off the wall but uh yeah and also i think it's the movie that kind of in some ways established steve buscemi as like a weirdo in the eyes of a lot of people you know what i mean just yeah, the, as a guy yeah. who could just be a real because 1995 is pretty early. It's still pre-Fargo for, you know, so he, he wasn't as mainstream as he would become later. But yeah, when I think of 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 the completely freaky roles of Steve Buscemi, it starts with Billy Madison in my brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, do I wish that uh, 
Steve Buscemi had been in Uncut Gems. Yeah, that would have been cool. Talk about Uncut Gems. Talk See, about look, I, I watch, I I watch TikTok. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Uncut Gems. Why wasn't he in Happy Gilmore? That's weird that he didn't appear in that one. It seems like a natural fit. Maybe, well, that time, uh, that time in both of their careers, he was probably working other places. You know what I mean? Like maybe he was filming. <laughs> Sorry, I'd make Con Air instead. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I don't. I don't know. I don't remember what year Happy Gilmore came out. I think maybe ninety six. Anyway, Liam, over at WeGotThisCover.com, there's an article just to show you how how little effort you have to put into writing articles for some of these websites. Nightmarish AI creation imagines Steve Buscemi as Superman. The list of actors to have almost played Superman is every bit as long as the roll call of names to have actually donned the costume. I would actually say that's much, much longer. What a ridiculous first sentence in this article. Uh, but it does list some of the most famous uh, Supermans. And then it talks about that someone used AI to bring to life an image of Steve Buscemi playing Superman. And basically the theme of this article is, is mockery. It's like it's nightmarish, it says. How ridiculous is it to think of Steve Buscemi playing Superman? I think he looks pretty good as Superman. Liam? Okay. What are your thoughts on this image? I mean, I got to agree with the nightmarish uh, <laughs> thing here, but that's just because it's one of these horrible <laughs> AI images. This this whole thing where everyone's fascinated like by these AI pieces of art, I've seen like whole articles just like, I put in Cthulhu and George Costanza, and look at this. And I'm like... That's barely a post on Tumblr, let alone a full article on an actual. You were paid to write this bullshit. Like, I just the obviously the internet has made us all stupider in a way that I really didn't think it was capable of. <laughs> I, I actually I'm very curious about AI art. I'm I'm on like I keep up on it and seeing where it's progressing. And I do think it's very fascinating and troublesome in equal measure. But it definitely is the Family Guy machine, which is what if this person did this right? And that is just a thousand different variations. And I'm guilty. Of it, right? What if what if Freddy Krueger was chopping up a pizza? That's something I put into one of these AI things. Oh, and that's fun. One hundred percent, as like a fun goof, I'm totally about it. Uh, the fact that we already have actual pieces of media being released with AI art instead of art by artists bums me out. And yeah. the fact that you would get paid to write an article just about a piece of AI art makes me like really mad. Like yeah. there's someone out there who can actually write things and has thoughts to share that is not getting paid. And this person got paid to post this fucking weird image of Steve Buscemi in a Superman outfit, which is like, by the way, it's not nightmarish because of what Steve Buscemi looks like, but rather as how this AI chose to represent how Steve Buscemi looks, which is like not the most caricature-ish, but is kind of a caricature of what he actually looks like. Yeah, yeah. It's a I I kind of like the image and I'm going to include yeah. it in our show notes so people can check it out just because um I like I I think he looks heroic and I like seeing Steve Buscemi looking heroic. Speaking of Steve Buscemi, the uh the focus of this very podcast. Uh recently we've been talking on the show about an upcoming film directed by Steve Buscemi called The Listener, which he made very much inspired by the lockdown by the pandemic generally. I remember him talking about it at length with Mark Marin uh, when they did uh, that interview a few months back. Uh, there's been uh, some reports of viewings of this. It, it premiered at the Venice Film Festival fairly recently. Uh, this is from The Hollywood Reporter. The listener review, Tessa Thompson anchors Steve Buscemi's sparse study of a crisis hotline. Uh, so it's basically, this is, um, I think, only for the most part, one person on screen for the entire time, not Steve Buscemi himself, who I don't believe acts in it. Tessa Thompson stars. Rebecca Hall and Margaret Cho voice some of the troubled souls who call in to speak to a helpline worker. Um, and it, this is just the end of the review. While the material could perhaps have worked just as easily as a podcast or other auditory performance, cinematographer Anka Melitinska, editor Kate Williams, and the, the design team collaborate effectively to maintain the visual interest throughout with cutaways from Beth's face to the tchotchkes on her shelves, her adorable fluffy dog, and the soft furnishings of her modest Los Angeles bungalow. We, like patients visiting a therapist at her home, are left to work out on our own what kind of person Beth is by the things around her and the way she talks and reacts. But in the end, that's all a kind of projection. What's really important is the work of talking through a human need that too often goes unmet. I am very curious about this. It seems kind of experimental, certainly for uh, in terms of form uh, for a, a Steve Buscemi film. We've seen some of his work previously. We've only covered one of them, Trees Lounge, on this show. Are you uh, curious about The Listener, Leo? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little skeptical as to um, how much uh, a, a, a film that is this static could hold my attention, but I was I was skeptical of that uh, 
what is that? Lock the movie that's just is all in the car with uh, sure. what's his yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, that that again. I went into that thinking there's no way, and I was sold. So is this going to be the same thing, sort of thing? You know, not the same thing, but the same sort of experience. It's very possible, and and I'm certainly interested in him as a director. Uh, but I don't know. There's a part of me that's a little worried that I'm not going to feel as engaged. So I mean, th- this one is going to be very reliant on the quality of the performance right. and the, in particular, the writing. Right? I yeah. mean, th- that it really has to work. Hey, you enjoy Spalding Gray talking at you for an hour and a half, Liam? Well, I mean, he's a genius. That's different. I like that Spalding Gray. Yeah. Uh, rest yeah. in peace, Liam. This episode of uh, How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we're going to be talking about 1994's Airheads. And you've talked several times before about your uh, love for this film growing up. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth in terms of your feelings recently. Uh, I just want to see, if can you remember the first time that you ever saw Airheads? Uh, no, I, well, you know, I rented it once. That's a really good question in the sense of like how old I was. I think probably when I was 15, I rented it just because I kind of had an idea of who Adam Sandler was and I, I knew he was in it. And so I wanted to give it a chance. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I think this viewing for this podcast was maybe the second time I've watched it all the way through. Interesting. So you saw it in bits and pieces. Did you ever see it on TV? That's what well, that's, when I was that's, when I was writing about uh, seeing it. Most people were like, "I saw this on cable a hundred times." Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I feel like intimately familiar with this movie because I saw it on cable all the time, and in my mind, it's like really funny because of that, because of having seen it on cable. But watching it now all the way through, I realize I must not have watched it all the way through many times because a lot of the beginning was entirely unfamiliar to me. Like, I didn't really remember parts of how it started, especially when he breaks into the record company. I didn't remember any of that. And yet other parts of the movie, for example, like when uh, he, uh, Steve Buscemi's character breaks the water gun and then uh, the racist guy from Seinfeld shoots at everybody. Uh, that, that like, I remember that every note of that all the, of those scenes like i've seen it on tv so many times that like i totally remember that so um i just think it's one of those movies that was always on cable and i was always willing to give it at least some of my time you know uh but but i i haven't rented it oh well I, we don't rent movies anymore but i haven't sat with it as a full movie i think for since i was a kid and i didn't realize that until i was watching it for this and was like Oh no, I really don't know this movie that well. Uh, and as I watched it, there were a lot of familiar things, and then a, a couple of things where I was like, "Oh, okay, okay." Uh, uh, some surprises. There were some surprises in the movie. Interesting. I'm very curious about all these surprises you keep talking about. By the way, that phenomenon about catching a movie on television so often that you're very familiar with certain parts, but usually the beginning is something maybe that you've only seen once or twice ever. Uh, I feel like that's a phenomenon that still exists to a certain extent, but is kind of going out of fashion. Uh, and it, it's, it's interesting. To, when we talked about the burbs on our, our Dick Miller podcast, that was another discussion we were having, right? Like, how familiar are we with this movie kind of beginning to end compared to how familiar are we with the kind of big moments of it. Well, I'm very curious because as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I had never watched Airheads before. Certainly was very aware of it. Certainly aware in the 90s. Uh, And I can't remember exactly why I would have avoided it. I love the cast. Lots of people in here that I enjoy very, very much. I was certainly a big SNL fan at this time period. So seeing all those faces together, I think would have been interesting. So uh, revisiting it, I, I tried to do it with an open mind. I certainly am still a huge fan of the Wayne's World movies. I like those very much. It seems like it would be in that same sort of ballpark. Is it? Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about 1994's Airheads. I can't take that tape from you. If it's unsolicited, I can't touch it. It's not easy to break into the music business, but these three guys... What's your secret code? I can't tell you my code. ...just found a way. You guys are a unsigned band, and you broke into the radio station to get your demo played on the air? I just feel a little goofy with a water pistol. They don't know it's a water pistol. They think it's real. Oops. Look, all I want to do is be heard, and then we're out of here. Okay, who are you guys? My name's Pip. The band. The band name. Sorry about that. Oh, man, look at this. The demo's wasted. Well, what are we going to do now? Run! Hello, police. 
three band members hoping for a big break head to a radio station to play their demo tape and wind up holding everyone hostage with plastic guns when the head DJ refuses to play them. It's 1994's Airheads, directed by Michael Lehman, the director of Heather's Meet the Applegates, and the absolutely reprehensible 40 Days and 40 Nights. I don't know. Have you ever seen that one, Liam? No, thank you. I mean, I, I saw have. that it's, in it's cinema. Oh, it is no, no, no. awful. And it's not only bad, there's something in that movie that the director himself, I believe, has apologized for. It is just... Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. I don't think we'll ever talk about 40 Days and 40 Nights on a podcast, but it's something else. Uh, these days, Michael does a lot of prestige television work. Written by Rich Wilkes, uh, who also wrote the Jerky Boys movie, Liam, and the first Triple X movie, I believe, as well, the uh, the action franchise, as well as 2019's The Dirt, based on the Motley Crue biography, uh, and and the uh, the post-Dazed and Confused stoner movie, The Stone Age. You ever see that one, Liam? Never. Now, I think that when you go through Rich Wilkes' career, particularly The Dirt, I think that's pretty notable because this movie feels in some way like particularly a response to the rise of grunge. I was saying before at the beginning of this episode that the fact that this movie was made in 93 and came out in 94 I think is really important because there's a part in the movie where Brendan Fraser specifically slags off. He, he, he insults the music coming out of Seattle at that time. And this is a movie very much in support of Motley Crue and Van Halen and sort of not necessarily hair metal, but definitely 80s cock rock is what I would call it, Liam. Uh, by the way, I, the IMDb says that Alexander Rockwell, a name that we're very familiar with because of Pete Smalls is Dead and In the Soup, was originally slated to direct this movie as well. I wonder if, how, if that was how Steve Buscemi originally got on board. Speaking of Steve Buscemi, he plays Rex, the bassist of the band The Lone Rangers in this. Adam Sandler plays the drummer. Brendan Fraser, the lead singer. We have Chris Farley, Ernie Hudson, the great Michael McKean is in here. Judd Nelson, Michael Richards, as you mentioned, the racist from Seinfeld. Joe Mantegna. Uh, lots of familiar faces. David Arquette and even Harold Ramis shows up briefly. Liam, I'm going to start. You had a lot of familiarity with this movie. What did you think after watching it? Well, you know, uh, there was a few things that kind of came back to me as I was watching it. One sure. was how... While I've always thought this movie was kind of funny, I had kind of lost touch with the fact that I also find it kind of cringy. Um, as you said, it's sort of an ode to to rockin'. You know, it's an it's an ode to a certain kind of rock and roll culture, um, and it's uh, it that aspect of it is a fucking bummer, uh, and it was a bummer to me as a kid. And then eventually I got over it because it's it's not really essential when you're only watching like the fun parts of the movie to like keep that in mind that like the animating premise here is this uh, these sort of washed up rockers being sad that there isn't a world for cock rock anymore. <laughs> uh, and and, uh, you know, I think also as I got older, the irony of cock rock started to appeal to me, you know, like so that there are certain uh, Motley Crue, uh, Wasp, uh, whatever 80s hair metal bands. There's like certain songs where I'm like, oh, that's funny. That's fun. You know, like I get that. It's still not something that I identify with per se, but I, I appreciate aspects of it. Uh, I'm not a true fan like a friend of the show, Josh Alvarez, who actually enjoys some of these fucking bands, which is like a nightmare scenario to me. Um, <laughs> I also want to I say- I mean, I think that you can extend it a little bit, right? Like ACDC right. or Motorhead, right? Really kind of hard See, rock. See, but that's, or... that's where I would disagree. The idea that Motorhead leads into hair metal is bullshit hair metal people told themselves. But it's not real. Motorhead really leads into real metal. And you can tell that the vibe here, the, the, this movie's haunted by real music, right? So like <laughs> the, the the band, the Lone Rangers is, is corny bullshit, right? But in their van, they have fucking obituary stickers. Obituary yeah. has more in common with real music than with this bullshit. They have uh, on the soundtrack, they have Degeneration. Sure, Degeneration is like a radio rock version of punk, but it originally came from punk. They have a Ramones song, an actual punk band. Four Non Blondes, I don't like it, but like they have more in common with the Seattle bullshit that he complains about. Yeah, than they I mean, do they're covering Van Halen here, so it's, it is yeah. kind of a weird But even mixture. like putting Anthrax on here, like I get that Anthrax played with a lot of like more cornball metal bands, but Anthrax thought of themselves on their first couple records as a hardcore band. In fact, they almost got beat up for using the New York hardcore logo on their records, and someone had to tell them, you don't get to use that. They said, okay, whatever you say, sir. Um, I think it's really notable in this movie that when we finally get to hear a Lone Ranger song, right. that it's a Reagan youth song, that it's a punk song, right. instead of 
the kind of metal that they've talked about loving for right. the entire movie. I mean, there's almost, uh, I mean, look, look, just looking at the playlist, right? Yeah, uh, for this movie, you've got White Zombie. Does that really count as the sort of thing that they're talking about? Really, you know, you've got Primus. Uh, nothing about this says Primus. You kind of feel like this band would hate White Zombie, right? right. That feels it, that's again. It, this is a movie that feels well, and again, White Zombie came across. If, if all you know is the most popular White Zombie songs, right? I mean, don't worry. This isn't a defense of White Zombie. I don't like that band. But their most popular music was not e- exemplary of where they came from. I mean, White Zombie started as an experimental noise band playing with, like, helmet and shit. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, this idea that, like... And even at this time, they hadn't yet broken. This isn't, like, uh, you know fucking Dragula, Dragula, you know, right, like this isn't that, this is still a little bit metal white zombie at this point, you know, even there's a fucking prong song on here. Prong. Yes. Became a, a, a like a mall metal band, but those are all hardcore dudes who like became mall metal for money and like, good for them. They did pretty good and, and made that money. The, 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 the best example on here is this. It's almost like a theme song for the movie. This born to raise hell motorhead song, right? Yeah. Only there are two guest vocalists on this Motorhead song. One is Ice-T, right, in a movie that, like, doesn't know what to do with whiteness and has to keep awkwardly pointing to, to, to things like the uh, uncomfortableness Adam Sandler feels around black people or Brendan Fraser using Rodney King as a chant to make I have to say, him chanting the Rodney King, that might be Awful. the biggest laugh I got in, in the movie simply because of how wrong-headed it it's is. So but bummed. it also it's feels like bummed. exactly what might happen in a scenario Right, yes, like 100%. <laughs> and, and, and then the other one is Whitfield Crane. Like, okay, I get that there's some metal, uh, uh, there, there is actually a little bit of like metal credence to Ugly Kid Joe. Like, they're not totally from the Seattle scene, but they're a, they're a band that straddled those two worlds. And the idea that Whitfield Crane is somehow connected to like more of a metal thing on this fucking Motorhead song, it's literally like you're trying, this movie is trying to get Seattle money, even if they're, exists in in fucking anxiety around Seattle. So let me ju- let me just back up. The parts of this movie <laughs> I, that I should never put the track list for the soundtrack on this. Topic. Oh, it just gave me a chance to like <laughs> fucking dig in. But I, I I do think it's helpful though, Doug, because I think the the thing about watching it now as an adult is I realize all the stuff that was the weird shit in the movie that I didn't pick up on when I was a kid. I got the vibe that it was corny. But watching it now, I'm like, oh, this is so pretend. Like even people who like hair metal must have seen this movie and been like. Hollywood, leave us alone. You're not getting it right, right? Which is how anyone, if you're into punk, if you're into metal, if you're into hip hop, all these movies that like touched on things you care about, almost always you're like, no, that's not it. Oh fuck, you're doing it wrong. You know, it's like uh, it's like New Year's Evil where there's that uh, uh new wave band and kids are trying right, to right. mosh to it, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Um, but also, I didn't realize how. The movie is, A, uncomfortable with women. I mean, really, there's, like, two ladies in it. One is this, like, perfect example of of, uh, of uh, the stereotype of the girlfriend who ruins the band. And yep. the other one is, like, oh, she's, like, so ditzy or whatever. And yeah. it's totally uh, – it's, it's all, all of the – maleness of the movie is offensive in and of itself just imagine trying to explain dumb blonde jokes to someone in 2022 and how prevalent they were in the mid 90s and i get by the standards of the time this is not an offensive movie and for me i wasn't offended but it just was like oh yeah this time was very awkward and a lot of this humor like isn't that funny in fact a lot of the stuff that i remember sort of vaguely having not watched the movie in a decade those were the funniest moments, the stuff that I could just tell you off the top of my head and all the stuff that I had not remembered. It wasn't like, oh, there's hidden jokes or hidden gems here. It was just kind of dumb. So I, I was just was kind of surprised at how much more I was annoyed by this movie. I also, though, Doug, was a little surprised at how the parts that I remember as being funny, they're still kind of funny. There's still some jokes that land for me in this movie. So I, I, I wasn't totally angry watching it or anything like that but i i was a little bit more like oh right like there's a lot of darlings from my childhood that on rewatch are just not going to hit in the same way and i was a little more distracted like you said there's anxiety in this movie about grunge in a way that feels utterly insecure just like this movie came out of someone's insecurities about young people uh and and there's a certain race anxiety the joke of him i mean i think the movie's aware that him chanting rodney king is Fucked Ra- up. Yeah, no, I headed. think it is. Yeah, yeah. 
but it's the sort of joke that I don't think would land. If you had a similar thing now with a metal band and my man started chanting like uh, like any number of uh, the many uh, black folks who've been murdered by police, it would not. Like, I'm glad Breonna that you did Taylor, not start saying you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but whoever it is, just whatever's going on, it would not land in any way. And in this, it's it, it doesn't really work. It's just kind of like, all right, yeah, okay, sure, whatever. You know, it doesn't the, – the only sort of running joke that I think kind of works for me still is uh, – in that way is the psychosis of the SWAT leader because that guy is still a police officer somewhere. Like, you know, this <laughs> this this kind beat cop who's trying to do the negotiations, that was like Hollywood bullshit. The crazy SWAT guy who's willing to give a gun to anyone just to, to because his wife left him, I was like, yeah, that feels real. That's a real – that's a real good satire right there. That's right on point. That's sharp, you know? So anyways, what did you think, Doug? I'm really curious because you've never seen this before and you have no, no attachment to it whatsoever. That's right. I want to ask you one question before I say my thoughts on it, sure. which is I mentioned Wayne's World. Same era, same sort of uh, – even same sort of cast, right, because it came out of SNL. That's still – that's also about characters that that really worship pre-grunge rock music. Yeah. Same kind of music to a certain extent. In that movie, it's really exemplified by bands like Aerosmith and Queen and Alice Cooper, that sort of thing. Maybe more classic rock. Do you like the Wayne's World movies? Oh, I haven't watched the sequel in a long time. I watched the first one not that long ago under the false pretenses of thinking of it as a Chicago movie, which, of course, <laughs> there are like literally five seconds of exteriors in like Aurora or other parts outside of Chicago. And it's literally – it's just a Toronto movie that they've had to change the references over for, right? I mean, the, actually, Mike Myers is actually, a Toronto guy. Actually, actually, no. L.A. Most of it's shot in L.A. Oh, Most, it's shot in L.A. But yeah. I just mean that the idea that it's like they're playing hockey in the streets and they have Stan sure. Mikitas as opposed to Tim Hortons, right? I mean, this is like, oh, we can't make this in Canada, so we have to make it a Canadian transplant. Oh, sure. But I think there's a sense in which Chicago people who also identify with hockey as much as Canadians do. Sure. Think of it this <laughs> sure as, they as do. a – I mean, you you don't know. Doc. I know they love it. I know they love their racist fucking. Yeah, that's team. fair. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, no, no, no. But I I think there's a sense in which oh, this is very Chicago. You know, we have yeah, this yeah. or we have that. I mean, even the donut place. There's a donut place here called Stands that people falsely identify as the donut place from Wayne's World, which it's it's not. And everything about this movie is L.A. Like watching it now as an adult, I'm like. Oh, these are all L.A. places. This movie is very L.A. It's just pretending. But anyway, do you like Wayne's World? Okay, sorry about that. I rewatched Please. it. Please. Parts of it are still funny, I think mostly because uh, Garth is funny. But <laughs> Wayne is the worst. And when I was a kid, I got that he was a character who needed to grow, but he was still endearing. He's not endearing. He is a awful man child that i want bad things to happen to i want i want a wayne's world sequel where it's just wayne getting beat up constantly like that would be fun for me um but like that here's the thing for whatever reason watching wayne's world the idea that i'm supposed to identify with the music opinions of any of these people it just doesn't even resonate with me so i just right i don't even it's so far away from me that i don't even care that it's like so cornball it's like oh yeah that's just who they are that's fine it doesn't bother me but even then right like none of these music opinions i think were that contemporary to that many young people at the time it helps wayne's world it's helped by the idea that even though some of the people in it seem very much of the early 90s the music that they're listening to is more like late 70s early 80s so it feels like it it doesn't have to it doesn't feel like it's so much in that moment, in that early right. 90s moment. Right. Airheads feels very much in a very specific moment. Yes. So when it comes to my feelings on it, it's one that I felt a lot of nostalgia watching it. You know, Nostalgia for a time, not for the movie itself, which I hadn't seen before, but because I lived through that. I lived through that transition, the death of hair metal and the, the, the grunge becoming very popular in the mainstream, even though it was in Newfoundland, which it gave it a very skewed perspective. I was sure. certainly aware of what was going on at the time. So... I have a kind of an affinity for this because it feels because when these characters are like, we love to rock, we love rock and rock all day, like that sort of shit. It seems so naive and so, so sort of silly, but it's also, I can see how people who are like, Oh, the thing I love is dying. We got to do something to save it. And what the thing that they love is just so it's so like unintelligent. Like there's just nothing to it outside of, I love to party. I love to do this and this that it, it, I can I can see that kind of simplified view 
of what they loved about music and seeing that going away, that must have been very scary. And I, as a response to that, I think it's actually kind of neat. I don't think it's a very funny movie. And it's weird that it's not very funny because so many really funny people are in it. And the, at the time when they were at their funniest in some cases. So it's kind of strange that so much of it is actually not serious necessarily, but it's not really a gag movie. One of the things about the no, Wayne's World movies like, is that they're it's very... it's almost dramatic at times. Yeah, yeah, at times, right? And if not dramatic, then it's almost kind of sitcom-y at yeah, times. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Um, it, it, it doesn't like lay into like sight gags the way that Wayne's World does, where it can just go into flights of fancy and imagination. This is a movie that is in some way supposed to take place in the real world. The problem with this movie for me is I don't want the band at the core to succeed because the kind of music that they make is not the kind of music I like at all, right? So the idea of them being like, we are geniuses and we just need to be exposed. I mean, I get that. That seems like something that you can kind of connect to. But the idea that, <laughs> that A, that they somehow fell into this idea of keeping this place hostage. But the big thing that I have trouble with is when people do get exposed to the music, that it really is something that people want to hear. And I, even though I do actually like that Degenerated song by Reagan Youth, the idea of this band, these fucking people <laughs> making music right, yeah. that's going to find some sort of long-term popularity, doesn't matter. Even if that shit hits in jail, in three months, like, Nevermind comes out and you're fucked anyway. So it doesn't matter, well, right? I, even, even the whole thing, right? Like, the anyone who's familiar with music at all, in my mind, is also going to feel like, well, these guys haven't earned anything, right? They're not road dogs. They haven't been on tour. You we know, keep, what I mean? they keep, we keep being told that they play shows, but we never see them play any shows. Well, and and even the shows they play, it's all like battle of the band bullshit. Like, yeah, go get in a van. You know what I mean? Like, here's here's the thing, Doug. The book Get in the Van came out in like what eighty seven, eighty eight, or something like that. Like, Black Flag already broke this in nineteen eighty one or nineteen eighty or whatever year it was that they toured the country. So, like, the fact that this movie's so infused with unintentional punk shit is a reminder of how bullshit this band is right because like lots of bands have broken through just by going out and playing shows you know and it's not like this band has done the work they just feel and and i guess that's the thing right part of me feels like maybe the movie wants to make fun of them wants to be cynical about them and there are parts that feel very disrespectful of their dreams and ambitions and doesn't yes, treat them like absolutely. real characters. But then when we get to the end and there's supposed to be some victory in them playing, that's the part where I'm like, why is this part of the movie? I kind of want, I mean, I, that's how I feel. The movie should end with them failing. And that's funny to me that that would be funnier as an overall part of the movie. I mean, I want to push back a little bit. I, I do agree that the movie's not that funny. There's a few moments that still ring pretty funny. I, for me. I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that I didn't enjoy it. I actually had a really good time with it, even outside of the nostalgia Bre Brendan, aspect. Brendan Fraser sadly munching that burrito <laughs> and squirting, squirting the hot sauce. On maybe it from that's the gun. maybe that's unintentional. But to me, I'm like that's so fucking good. Like, there's a few moments that if the movie isn't meant to be like. The movie walks a weird line. If the movie's meant to be cynical about the band and about this kind of music, there are parts that are kind of funny because I feel like they're just mean. And I like that because I want to be mean to these people. But the movie ends up sort of on their side a little bit. Oh, and definitely. I don't feel like that's justified because nothing earns my sympathy in this movie for these folks. At the all. final half hour is all about if if people can hear this music, like literally if they hear it, then it's going to break through. But you're right. It would be so much funnier if they heard it and be like, well, it's okay. You know, yeah, it's that's fine. fine. I guess that's yeah. fine. <laughs> that would have been amusing to me. Yeah. It's just weird that the director of Heather's, a movie that has a real edge to it, yes. made this movie that has no edge at all. But also, I just want to go back to that idea. The writer of this wrote The Dirt, right? Based on Motley Crue's yeah. biography. That Motley Crue, to me, is the band that exemplifies the the spirit of this movie and I have to say, I fucking hate Motley Crue. Oh, I sure. hate that I entire I'm, I'm, idea of, of what music is in, in the style of Motley Crue. Just does nothing for me whatsoever. And and so I don't connect with it on this music level, but I don't think that is a necessity for enjoying it. I love so many of the performers here. But in particular, you know, just seeing um seeing Michael McKeon be such a, you know, piece of shit with his little ponytail. Yeah. I just love I just love that. And I mean, even though Michael Richards is <laughs> complex in terms of his history 
and I don't necessarily find his part very funny in here. His physicality as a performer, which is something he relied on so heavily, yeah. is still something that I do find pretty amusing. It's just it's just a really strange movie in a lot of ways, and it feels. It feels like a year if it, if it came out a year later everyone would be like, "Huh? What is this supposed to be?" And if yeah. it came out even maybe a year earlier, it also would feel a little bit that. It feels very much like 1993 even though it came out in 1994. Like even down to Beavis and Butthead, you know, calling into the the yeah. thing. Yeah. Like that's kind of cringy, but it's also, "Oh yeah, it was 1994. That's yeah. what this was, right?" Yeah. It just it just it made me feel a lot of feelings, but not all of those feelings and not many of those feelings were laughter necessarily. I, I, I just think too, like the the part of the animating idea of the movie is this feeling that the radio industry is corrupt, right? That, yes, and, absolutely. And by the way, they're not wrong. People nope. paid money to get songs on the radio and the fact that a song was on the radio would make the band popular. And it wasn't like that common for a band to really ride on their talent. The problem is the movie seems to suggest that like, that's happening to all these other bands, but the sort of band that the Lone Rangers are, that wouldn't that they're not the ones getting that treatment. But in reality, like uh, pay to play, you know, on on the radio, that wasn't happening to Nirvana really. That wasn't happening to a number of these grunge bands until much later. In fact, funny enough that there's a fucking Candlebox song on here because talk about a band that <laughs> spread some money to get popular. Um, the 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 music that is giving the folks in this movie anxiety is not the stuff in fact the reason nirvana even breaks through partly is because the system of evaluating popularity changes right uh, record stores would self-report right so record companies could give bonuses to record stores so that record stores would report yeah this record's so real good it's like number one and so you'd have all these number one hits that there was no data right. and in 92 i think 93 somewhere around there is when they started SoundScan, where you actually were seeing real world numbers as to uh who was selling more records? That's how Nirvana broke. Was nobody wanted them to be a number one band. It's just the numbers came out. And it's like, oh shit, this is a number one band. I guess we need to switch our focus here and look at this whole Seattle thing. You know, I want to make it clear, by the way, that Liam and I are both very aware of the fact that Nirvana were a pop had a, a, a strong popularity leading up to Nevermind, and that we're you know we're sure. we're you know that that. There's certainly a huge portion of the United States that would have already been aware of them before Nevermind came out. But in terms of this worldwide massive, like basically shift in terms of music, Nevermind is still the marker, right? I well, mean, that's but, what everyone but, points but, to. But, the, but I think the thing with that, though, is that, that they're one of the bands that is animating this movie's anxiety around the, the end of like rocking out, right? Yeah. But in the movie, the villains are these ponytailed executives who are being massaged into playing the wrong stuff. Why is Nirvana the wrong stuff? Because they're not cock rockers? You know what I mean? Like, again, I think it's because they're sad, right? I mean, I think yeah, that's I guess. part of it. But, it's but, so funny. But, but you know, they, don't they, fit the, the, they don't fit the, the, the mold of, you're only playing this because someone greased your palms. Yeah. They are literally one of the first popular groups where no palms were greased in any way. I don't think, unless like, you know, Sub Pop or whoever put out their first records had all this money on the side. I just think they were, uh, and for me, that's what makes them significant. I don't even like their music that much. It's just not a band I care about. But what's interesting is seeing like, oh, when we can actually track real record sales, suddenly who's popular changes, you know? And it wasn't just for them. The same thing happened for a lot of rappers as well, that they, they weren't getting attention. And then the numbers came out. It's like, oh, shit, people actually listen to rap are bad. I just, I've always been fascinated by musical um, genres or musical thematic aspects that are responses to other things you know how sure. yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, do yeah. the classic one being punk as a response to really kind of complicated rock music and and pink floyd and elo and all that sort of shit but like the idea because we're going to talk about liam at some point we're going to do a patreon episode about that oasis album definitely maybe and oasis was designed as a response to uh alternative music specifically nirvana sure. right the idea it's like they're so sad being a rock band is like the greatest thing in the world which that's what this movie is about is about right, how great yes. it is to be a rock band but it is funny you know i keep going back to motley Crue. like they the reason that that the dirt was an interesting book to read is because they were like the worst people on the entire yeah, planet 100 and they even and the funny thing is like the one mention of motley Crue in this that i remember is talking about vince neal killing somebody which he did 
Yeah. Right? It's just such a strange dichotomy. Uh, what a word to use. Liam, did you watch SNL in the early 90s? Sure. Around this time period? Yeah. Were you a big fan? No. I, mean, I guess if you watched it. <laughs> I watched it. I wasn't like obsessed. But yeah, there were stuff. There were there were a few things here and there that I really thought were really funny. Peter Travers, in his Rolling Stone review for this movie, refers specifically to Adam Sandler in it. Adam Sandler, at that point, had not been in many movies whatsoever. He says, And Sandler, opera man on SNL, is a red-hot screen find. Is that how you would uh, think of his performance in this? I mean, sure. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of him in this? It's fine. He's fine. Um, I... I, of the various things that he is known for, this version of Adam Sandler is the least interesting to me. Um, but it's not bad. I mean, he's certainly not doing any of the over-the-top embarrassing stuff he does in some of his other movies. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's a one-note joke with that character, and it gets a little old after a while. That part where Steve Buscemi is trying to teach him to be like angry and to show off that anger... And it's so funny because one of the things that Adam Sandler is best known for is being able to just go from, oh, kind of quiet, that sort of thing, and just to being like the craziest, ridiculous, angry person. Uh, but this movie, yeah, really just leans on the kind of simpleton aspect of it. He's good. I mean, he's he's fine. Uh, certainly for someone who didn't have a lot of acting experience on screen at that point, I think he does a good job. Any of the performances stick out to you generally outside of Steve Buscemi? Well, um... I mean, we're going to talk about the Steve, right? I guess, like I said, and I forget his name, but the SWAT, the head of the SWAT team. You know, I always think of him as from uh, Starship Troopers where he talks about yes. they sucked his brains yeah, out of that yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's Marshall uh, Bell. Yeah, that's okay. That's right. Uh, I like him in that role. I thought I thought that was fun. Um, and, you know, th- there's a little bit of a. Uh, there's a little bit of of a uh, 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 soft in my heart for Chris Farley. <laughs> Sorry, I just also Marshall Bell, best known for getting his ass whipped in Nightmare on Elm Street. I, Part oh my two. god, that's what I was reaching for. <laughs> I kept thinking, no, I know him as a gym teacher. What is he a gym teacher? In? Right, right. Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. Um, uh, Chris Farley as the other, the the sort of newer uh, rookie cop. You know, there's there's a little. I have a little bit of nostalgia for Chris Farley. Um, Me too, but I feel like if this movie came out a year later, he'd have a much bigger Oh, 100, 100%. But that's kind of – I just think what he gets to do is kind of fun at times, yeah. you know. Um, otherwise, I, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, like you said, uh, McKean and with the, the, the shitty ponytail guy, that's, that's like such a classic – He's so gross. He's like the ultimate gross. And then when the big reveal that he's switching it to easy listening and he just tries to play it off like it's no big deal. <laughs> that's my favorite. That's, that is one of the – a lot of the pathos in this movie, like the parts that you're supposed to care about beyond the jokes, a lot of it just doesn't land for me. It's fine, but it, it doesn't matter. That scene, how incensed they all are, and he's just like, what? Whatever. Come on. <laughs> I, that still works for me. I still was like, yeah, all right. I'm in on this. <laughs> you like Joe Montana in this? Uh, is it Montana? I think it's Montana. I don't think you Montana? say Montana. Sorry about that. Do you like Joe Montana in this? Uh, yeah, it's. I've always been kind of hit or miss with him, just as an actor. In fact, one of my favorite roles ever of his is just him as himself on Barry. Uh, <laughs> I think that's really good. But uh, you know, I, I I'm not a huge fan. I think he's fine. But that you know, if there was a level of rocker, I didn't understand. It wasn't just the hair metal leftovers in the 90s. It was these old man, former hippies who were like, why doesn't stuff still sound like Led Zeppelin, man? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, get the get the fuck out of here. Like, you know? It's weird. He's supposed to be like an old school DJ, but also sort of supposed to be like a shock jock person as well. And that voice, even though his voice is very, very distinctive, doesn't yeah. really connect with me like a DJ no, voice necessarily. No, not at all. <laughs> You already talked about the soundtrack, Liam. Did did you have a copy of the soundtrack? No. Not something you'd be interested in? Tell me the best song on this soundtrack. That's a good question. I mean, I don't remember them all. Like, for example, I couldn't pick out the prong song from anything else. Sure. The one that sticks out to me is the Born to Race Hell, just because the idea of Motorhead teaming up with Ice-T and Whitfield Crane is just funny to me. Right. And I've heard that song outside of the context of this movie before. And Lemmy shows up in the movie as well. Yes, which I think is a very funny cameo. Like, good for him. You know, whatever. That that works. Uh, but 
Yeah, I guess I'd have to say Born to Race Hell then because I'm not like if you asked me to hum anything of any of these other songs, I don't think I could, honestly. Like none of them really stick out for me. Even the song that you were talking about that did that's the Reagan Youth song that's that they pretend is their song. That's not even the era of Reagan Youth that I like. So I don't yeah, really yeah, yeah. know that song, you know? It, there's just not much here that sticks out, even though the names like of course I know White Zombie, but I was never a huge White Zombie fan, so I only know the radio tracks, and I don't love them. They're just in my head because in the 90s, later 90s, they were playing everywhere. Everywhere you went, you heard White Zombie. So you just know the song, even if you don't like the song. You know, It's so funny that it ends with the Ramones song, We Want the Airwaves, which, I mean, thematically fits into the, the uh, movie very well. But just the Ramones just feels like it, a separate thing. Yes. I guess like the path from Ramones to Motorhead to whatever they're trying to do that you can you can trace that line, but it just seems at odds with the rest of the soundtrack. Uh, and it's just, it's just not, it feels like a bit of a confused movie. And I think that's really what I get out of it. Yeah. But it's so funny that I imagine people listening right now are like, what's wrong with you? Who cares what the movie is about? It's whether it's funny or not. And generally I found it really amusing, right? I mean, I, I, just because of the performers, but I didn't laugh as much as I thought I was going to. I just thought I was going to have a funnier time because of all of the talented people I- involved. But it's just it just wasn't for me. I think we're just responding to the movie. The movie, if you try to tell me this movie is more concerned with laughs than plot, then I feel like you weren't paying attention to the movie. The movie yeah. chooses plot a lot. There are laughs. There's ridiculous stuff. Again, Michael Richards drops that machine gun out of the tube. You know, that's fun. That's funny. But but th- there's not a ton of gags. And in 94, there are other gag comedies out. It's not like all comedy now is like narratively focused and and character focused. The movie does that. It makes that decision. And I get there are people who watch this and are charmed by these characters and really care about them. I'm just not one of those people. But again, like you said, that doesn't mean it's entirely not entertaining. I didn't I wasn't bummed watching it. I had fun. I just wanted it to be funnier than it was, and it doesn't quite get there. Let's talk about Steve Semi plays Rex, the basis of the Lone Rangers that mm-hmm. are the kind of central band in this. It's kind of an off-model role for Steve Buscemi to play, um, even though we, we, as we've seen on this show, uh, you know, there wasn't just a kind of specific kind of role he was playing. But you know, he was making Jim Jarmusch movies. This was after Reservoir Dogs. His his uh, stock was rising in Hollywood, that's for sure. But he didn't do a lot, even though he appears in a lot of these Adam Sandler movies. He didn't have a central role and doesn't have a central role in many of them at all. So it's kind of interesting to see him play in the midst of this wacky SNL style. Comedy, what did you think of his performance in this? I just think it's weird to have him at, I think he's, what, 37 in this? (laughs) Playing this, like, 20-something rocker, you know? Like, it's... (laughs) You know what I mean? He he is the age that the washed-up DJ is supposed to be, I think. In, in the in, in the in the movie, you know, like I just think like I don't get me wrong. Let me let me back up a little bit. I if I'm being honest, I kind of love this performance because it isn't his usual. I mean, there's an edge to other things he's played in this. You know, uh, usually this level of uh, snark and cynicism from him is reserved for a criminal. When he plays a criminal, this is the tone. You know, the, ah, come on. Absolutely. And uh, this guy, well, he is a criminal, but he's not primarily a criminal, right? Uh, But him in this wig and him walking around, like, looking like a rocker, I kind of like it. It just feels like his character should be Brendan Fraser's a kid, Adam Sandler's a kid. Here's some old man we found to play bass, which, by the way, <laughs> is not that rare. Like, there are classic examples. Like, absolutely. I, I, I know more from punk, but, you know, take the descendants where one member of the band on the first record is 14 and another one is 26, right? That's weird, right? That's very weird, especially when you take into account that some of their really weird girlfriend songs were written by the guy in his mid twenties. Really, yeah. really enforces the idea that the Descendants are an incel band. Sorry, that was my my quick uh, punk. I always think of day. of the band Garbage, where you got sure. uh, yeah, 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 Butch yeah. Vig, who's so much older than yeah. everybody else. I mean, but that wasn't that. Unco- I mean, uh, shit. T- take a look at Fear, right? Uh, sure. uh, our man, uh, our man in Fear was older than most of the other punks around, right? That happened, so that should be his thing. The idea that he's supposed to be the same age as Brent. Brendan Fraser, and he's literally 37 years old. And by the way, looks 37 years old. 
It's just, I mean, in a sense, if he if you had him like playing older, he kind of looks good for older in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's just they want him to be a gnarly twenty something, and that's weird. It's a weird decision. Um, that makes that gag at the end where they're they're playing at the prison. Where he's like pretending his base is his fucking dick, and all, yeah, all the yeah. and, and all the prisoners are staring at him. It yeah. just looks like you are a thirty-five plus year old man, Steven. I mean, what are you doing out there? <laughs> I mean, right? Like, okay, so what, this movie came out in ninety-four. Yeah, he was born in fifty-seven. Yes, so I think he's literally thirty-seven at least when the movie comes out. And and he's eleven years older than Brendan Fraser, who's supposed right. to be his like contemporary. Right. <laughs> Well, outside of the fact that the age gap makes it a no, little no, no. hard I, to swallow. I, so, okay, so I, I know I'm obsessing over it just because I think it's funny. <laughs> I, that being said, I do like the performance. I think the character is unnecessarily limited at times, you know, because he has one note, he's angry. I think yeah. if, if they want us to care so much about the plot and the characters, give my man some modulation. Maybe he's angry all the time because he's actually sad. Give him a moment to be sad. If he's only going to be angry all the time, then make him funnier, man. There's just not – Steve Buscemi angry can be really fucking hilarious. Some of the yeah. funniest moments he's ever had in movies is him being angry. Give him some more time to be angry and funny in this movie. Instead, he's just there to be like, come on, man, to all the other guys, which is just not that fun. you know. Honestly, if you now that I think about it, if his character was that he was supposed to be the older guy in the band, the guy who's a little bit washed up, yeah. and yeah. it's just like this is his last chance – that would have given his character a little bit of an edge that would be a little bit more funny. Because even Adam Sandler's character at least gets the relationship, and Brendan Fraser is the face of the band. He really does get kind of lost at the midpoint of it, outside of just, I'm the guy with the gun who's being angry all the time. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, he doesn't have a lot to do. He's still great because he's Steve Buscemi, yes. because he's, that is, being angry is something that he's very, very good at, and being super frustrated. It's still, it feels in the movie where they make the decision to pull the gun out. That feels like it should be like a way darker, scarier thing than it ends up being. And the idea that we find out at the end that they're in jail for six months, three months with good behavior, all I'm thinking about is like, no fucking way. <laughs> Even if they didn't have real guns, that's not how that's going to play out. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. Um, I also want to say like he does get to deliver the uh, trick question, Lemmy is God. Uh, line, which is not that funny, but was kind of cla- it became kind of iconic. But for me, it's just another reminder that like it is true that all these guys all worshipped Lemmy to a certain extent, but none of their bands were even close to as good as Motorhead. So it's yeah. like, why do you care? Like, I think they only worshipped Lemmy because he was an alcoholic, not because they actually liked Motorhead. <laughs> he looked filthy, so that's why we enjoy yeah, him guess, so much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Liam, any final thoughts on 1994's Airheads? Were you a little disappointed in revisiting it? A little bit. I mean, I'll be honest. I went in kind of thinking I might be, as much as I said, like, oh, I love that movie growing up. As we, as I went to watch it, I thought, oh, my God, I'm watching Airheads. Like, this is going to be a bummer just because I've had that experience so much where something that once I thought was great is less great. But to, on the other hand, it while there are parts of it that I think are poorly aged, at this point in our lives uh there's nothing in it that's truly awful where i'm like oh fuck you movie that's a win at this point if a if a 90s movie never crosses the line into i'm angry that's pretty good actually so so in that sense it was also a relief to watch it i mean i have nothing against it i know people have really strong positive feelings about this movie Uh, i feel like of the comedies of that time period it doesn't rise to that next level and probably some people are frustrated who hate billy madison they're like wait these guys like billy madison but they hate airheads yeah that's just the reality of the world that i live in i'm afraid Uh, billy madison has jokes so how about that hey you know what eventually we're going to cover billy Billy madison on this show and we can maybe we'll revisit it and who knows what our feelings may be though i've watched it in semi-recent memory so i have a feeling i'll still enjoy it Liam, on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we are going to be watching another kind of, of lauded uh, Steve Buscemi role. That is in Terry Zwigoff's Ghost World from the year 2001. Do you have any history with this particular film? Not only do I love this movie, uh, we made a shirt for it for uh, Rough Cut uh, Fan Club. Have you ever made a shirt for Rough Cut where you were not familiar with the movie? Uh, a few, yes. <laughs> I figured. I figured it was possible. But in this case, did you have any influence over the Ghost World choice? 
Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to claim that it was my idea. It wasn't sure. that far, but when it was suggested, I was very into it because I do enjoy both the movie and the and the graphic novel, which are significantly different from each other, but not in a way that bums me out. Yeah, uh, that's Daniel Klaus, right? Who uh, did the? Uh, yep. So I feel like I'm going to have to read that in preparation for the next episode. Now that we don't have enough comics to have to read for our various projects right now, Liam. On the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, 2001's Ghost World. Very excited to revisit that. I haven't watched that movie in a number of years, but I certainly watched it a ton in the early 2000s. Liam, people want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids or check out the latest on Cinepunks. What's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can, of course, head over to Cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-O-N-X, uh, to, you know, not only hear the latest episodes of this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts, uh, as well as writing and a merch store, all kinds of stuff. They can head over to Cinemasmorgasbord.com to dive into the archive of the various shows we do, from uh, this show to uh, our Jackie Chan show, our uh, Carol Kane show. Um, our Alejandro Jodorowsky show uh, and they can follow both Cinepunks and Cinema Smorgasbord on social media Cinema Smorgasbord is on Twitter at Cinema Smorg S-M-O-R-G and Cinepunks is on Facebook Twitter and Instagram C-I-N-E P-U-N-X on all platforms you can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you enjoy what you're hearing, why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice or tell a friend. That's the best way to promote our show. Hey, we don't have ads. We don't uh, ask for anything out of people. We just want to get the word out there. So any word that you can give helps us a lot. We're going to be back very soon with another Steve Buscemi classic. Good night, everybody. Night-night. Night-night. <laughs>